You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I don't know if you've been listening to our podcast called Meet the Church. If you haven't, you should. Uh, Each week, someone in our church interviews someone else in our church, and they get into the person's story, their interests, the gifts that they have. And it's always fascinating to me, just the varied ways that God's grace is at work in and through people's lives. Uh, Last week, Dorothy Bennett interviewed A.K. Sanford, who is an art director at an ad agency here in town. And so they talked about creative arts and specifically advertising. At one point, AK said that she feels like she kind of has a leg up because she has unique insight into what people really want. She talked about how people will say they want one thing and she identifies that as like a surface desire. But because she understands the human heart through the lens of the gospel, she sees deeper desires underneath what they're saying. That just got me thinking this week about the comprehensive nature of the gospel and how it addresses so many of the things that people want. All of these surface desires are actually shadows that point us to the substance who is Christ himself. I think if you look into the gospel of Jesus and all that it means for us, you'll find that all of our surface desires, all of the good longings of the human heart are pointing us to something much deeper and much better. They're pointing us to life with God. Uh, people want love, for example. But, you know, love is often in our world sentimental and conditional. But biblical love, love with God, is selfless and it endures all things. People want joy, but it's often tied to circumstances. But the biblical vision of joy is tied to the unchanging nature of God and his faithful commitment to us. And again, you can just see that over and over. And the reason I'm just bringing all that up is because Advent is a season which taps into the longings of our human heart. And Christmas is the good news that God satisfies the deepest longings in the person of Jesus. He's come to be with us, Emmanuel. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at this verse in Isaiah 9. Uh, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, but Isaiah is telling us that a child will be born, a son will be given, and he gives him a fourfold name, which tells us what God is like. He says he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And we've looked at those three names over the last three weeks, and today we look at the final name. He's the Prince of Peace. Uh, This, again, was written to a people who were on the brink of war and certain defeat. If you were in their shoes, you would have been crying out for peace. Just as today, people all over the world are crying out for peace. Right now, around the globe, there is war and oppression and people are crying out for peace. In our country, there are political wars and cultural wars. There's hostility and injustice and people are longing for peace. In your own lives, you may have relational conflict. You may just have inner turmoil out of fear and anxiety, and you're just desperate for a little peace. Now, here's the thing. When I describe those situations, most of us, when we think about peace, we're thinking about the absence of those things. 
like a ceasefire or a truce of some kind. And while that's a good desire, that desire is actually pointing us to something much deeper and much better. It's pointing us to the biblical vision of peace that can only be found in Christ because he is the prince of peace. And so today I just want to talk about what that means uh, by answering a few questions. First, what is the biblical concept or vision of peace? Why don't we have it? How do we get it? And what do we do with it? Now we're going to move through those as quickly as we can. First big question is, what is peace? Like, what is the biblical idea of peace? And the word in Hebrew is shalom. It's a very rich word that runs throughout the Bible. And the basic meaning of it is wholeness or completeness. So think about when you start a jigsaw puzzle. You dump all the pieces out on the table, and it's a mess. Some pieces are upside down, and they're out of order, obviously. And any given piece is a misfit with almost every other piece. It's chaos. But when you get the puzzle together, it, it makes sense. It fits. It's, sometimes it's beautiful. That's jigsaw shalom, right? What was disjointed has been brought together and is whole and complete. And so in the scriptures, a shepherd might say that his flock is, has shalom. And what he means by that is that all of the sheep are well and accounted for. Um, in the book of Proverbs, to reconcile or heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom to the relationship. Sometimes uh, the Bible talks about someone dying in peace, in shalom. It doesn't just mean they have loved ones around. It means that they've lived a full and satisfying life, a whole and complete life. So simply put, shalom is the way things are supposed to be according to God's design for creation and human flourishing. It's not simply the absence of conflict or war. It's, it's something better in its place. It's nations and people working together to promote justice and prosperity for all people. Uh, let me give you a small example, maybe even a silly example. When I was in college, uh, I worked at Wyatt's Office Supply. And there was this older woman who worked there named Judy. She was very sweet, but Judy had a way of doing things, and she only did things in her way of doing things. And her way of doing things was extremely slow. And so it just bugged me because uh, it wasn't efficient. But the worst part about it was the way that she would scold me for not doing things her way. Uh, it just drove me nuts. And so eventually I just kind of decided to steer clear of Judy. And that, and that did resolve some of the tension, but that's not real peace, is it? I don't know how it happened, but one day I just decided I had the wrong goal. My goal at the office was to be efficient, but as long as that was the goal, Judy would always be this like frustrating obstacle. And so one day I just decided I have a new goal. My goal now at work is to make Judy's day awesome. And so I just started serving her. I started doing things her way as much as I could. I started asking her questions about her life. And over time, we became friends. And you know what happened? I learned some things from Judy. She'd been working there a long time. Also, Judy let me teach her a few things, you know, about technology and that sort of stuff. We were happier and more productive in the end because we were working together for each other's good. That is workplace shalom. Now, just take that little example and scale it to all of the various kinds of society and cultural issues, 
And you get a definition like this that uh, Cornelius Plantinga gives us. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation. Injustice, fulfillment, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder in the Creator and Savior God. That's the deeper and better thing that we're longing for. And the only place you, you see that kind of fullness of shalom is in creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there, there is universal flourishing for humanity and creation. That's what we all long for, even though none of us have ever really experienced it. After an Adam and Eve, no one has ever lived in the Garden of Eden, yet we all long for the reality of it. And the reason for that is because we're made in the image of God. The, his designs are like in the blueprint of our soul. King Solomon says that God has put eternity in our hearts, which just means there's, there's something down deep inside of us that gives us a sense that there's something more. Something like shalom really does exist. And so deep down in every human heart, there is this ache for Eden. That's where the biblical story begins, in the shalom of creation. And so why don't we have it? Well, that's the next part of the story. If our concept of shalom is rooted in creation, then our understanding of why we don't have it is rooted in the fall, which begins in Genesis 3. Uh, the man and the woman in shalom listen to the tempter who distorts God's word and turns desire in on self. And what it results in is human rebellion against God and God's designs. And it just unleashes all forms of chaos. Shame, hiding, blame shifting, cursing, and exile. Uh, the good, fruitful earth becomes their foe. Thorns and thistles in the ground. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says, it was as if the very fabric of created order began to unravel and the whole creation began to experience the lack of shalom. In his book, Engaging God's World, uh, Plantinga traces the unraveling of creation through the Genesis story. I'll just share a little bit of it with you. He begins in chapter four, where Cain resents and kills his brother, Abel, uh, launching the history of envy that leads to murder, he says. And so Cain becomes a fugitive and a wanderer. He is a murderer who now fears other murderers. In Genesis 6, we get this commentary on humanity. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. From there, the history of sin and corruption moves down through the ages. Each generation and each new person reaps what others have sown and then sows what others will reap. Every generation that enters the world enters a place that has long ago lost its Eden, a world that Plantinga says is now half ruined by the billions of bad choices and the millions of old habits embedded in thousands of cultures across time. In this world, even Christians, even like the Apostle Paul, 
finds that even when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. His summary is, what we have in this world is not just sins, but sin. Not just wrong actions, but wrong tendencies, habits, practices, and patterns that break down the integrity of persons and families and cultures. Sin is multifaceted and pervasive. At the core of all that's wrong with the world, the answer is human rebellion against God and his designs. And just just to think about how pervasive it is, think about this reality. Everyone wants peace, and yet everyone continues to act in ways that promote division and neglect justice. It's, It's tragic. I've been trying to do some thinking and reading this week just about the layers of corruption and brokenness in our world. I'll be honest, there have been times that I've had to just stop what I'm doing because just the sadness is too overwhelming. At one point, I was thinking about it uh, in, in terms of parenting. Uh, you start out with these little babies. They're just innocent and helpless and so dependent. It's such a great picture of peace. When my boys were babies, I would lay down on the couch and I would lay them on my chest and we would just take a nap together. That's probably the closest feeling of shalom that I've ever had in my life. When they're young, we have so many hopes and dreams for them. But as they grow up, they experience the unfairness of the world, the corruption of the world. They go to middle school and they become independent, don't they? They begin to make choices for themselves, and sometimes they make bad choices. Choices against God, choices against others, even choices against themselves. Just like Adam and Eve did. Just like we do. It's heartbreaking. And that's what's happened to our world. Innocence was lost, and shalom came unraveled. But here's the good news. God is not helpless like we are. He is the everlasting Father. He loves us perfectly, and he has the power to rescue and restore us. That's the promise Isaiah gives us. God will come to his people, and he will bring shalom. That's how we get it. He gives it to us. Look at verse 9 with me, or chapter 9, Isaiah 9 with me. Uh, In verse 3 and 4, we've looked at this in past weeks, so we'll be brief. These verses describe the mighty God fighting for his people and defeating his enemies. It's war imagery. And then verse 5 points to a day when there is no more war. Look what it says. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, the boots that you would wear in battle and the uniforms stained with blood, all the gear and weaponry, they don't need it anymore because there is no more war. Now it's just, it's good for just fuel for the fire. It's burned up. Now, how will this come to be? Who will put an end to the conflict in this world? Verse 6, this is the promise. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and his name shall be called Prince of Peace. God will come to us and he will give us peace because he is the Prince of Peace. As we've been doing for the last few weeks, I just want to take a few minutes to 
reflect and consider how Jesus fulfills this promise. When Jesus was still in the womb, his uncle Zacharias prophesied about him. And you can hear the language of Isaiah 9 in what he says. So Isaiah 9-2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then in verse 6, he's called the Prince of Peace. So turn over to Luke 1. You don't have to turn there, but this is what Zechariah says about Jesus. He says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, the morning star, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Before Jesus took a breath in this world, he was the Prince of Peace. In his life, he preached peace and gave peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers. In the upper room with his disciples, he said, Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. How? How did he overcome the world? By making peace through his death. This is just one of the great paradoxes of the gospel, that God wins the war through apparent weakness and apparent defeat. He gives life through death. And so, through the death of Jesus, we are reconciled to God. Romans 5. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Listen, all of our longings for peace in the world begin with this foundation of peace with God. And the only way to get peace with God is through faith in Jesus. Every other approach to peace is just a tactic. Jesus is a person who lived and died for us and rose from the dead so that we could have life with God. It's not a transaction. It's a relationship. And so we continue to come to him. We can keep trusting him. We keep seeking him. This is why Paul said, when you feel anxious, here's what you do. Bring those thoughts to God. Let him know what you want, what your heart's desires are, because when you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which might not even make sense to the world, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Through the death of Jesus, we are reconciled also to one another. Ephesians 2, which we've looked at a lot. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, that is, in his death on the cross, he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And this isn't two people just tolerating each other, It's two people flourishing as one new man, one body. Because Jesus has made peace among his people, we're commanded to be eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Colossians 3, Paul writes to the church and he says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. That's the the ruling principle of our community. What does that mean? Well, um, 
I don't know about you, but when I feel anxious or when I feel unsettled, this happens kind of on a daily basis, I can usually trace it back to some interaction earlier in that day where I was just walking in the flesh. That is, exalting self, seeking something for myself, selfish desire, and, and not walking in the Spirit. And when I'm alerted to that, I realize that's what's broken my peace. That's what's given me this funky feeling. And when that happens, I have this choice. I can kind of try to bury it and move on, but that only hardens my heart. Or I can be sensitive to the peace of Christ that's ruling in our community. I can confess it. I can repent. I can seek to be reconciled. That's how we let the peace of Christ rule. And so just think about that dynamic in our community. How does that play out? If the peace of Christ is ruling our hearts, then we'll be sensitive to those times when we act out of pride and fear. We'll be sensitive to all those times where we're defensive when someone tries to just lovingly confront us with something. The times where we gossip or objectify someone, when we get a laugh at someone's expense, when we hold a grudge, when we covet what someone has, when we neglect what someone needs. I mean, we could just go on and on. There are so many things that disrupt the peace of community. And when those things come to mind, when the Spirit of God brings them to mind, we, we ask God to show us, why is that there? How can I make this right? That's how we let the peace of Christ rule of hearts. When we do that, we become kinder and more compassionate, humbler and more forgiving. And Paul says that kind of love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Shalom. Through the death of Jesus, we are reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, and finally, the last thing, through his death, all things are reconciled to God. Colossians 1, through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so when Jesus came, he began this work. And now he continues this work through his spirit. And when he comes again, he will complete it. He will consummate his kingdom of peace. That's what Isaiah promises and envisions. Chapter nine, verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So, through Jesus, we have peace with God and peace with one another and the hope of ultimate and eternal peace. So the last question is just, what do we do with it? Or what are we doing until he comes? Well, we don't sit and wait idly. We aren't like people who are just sort of enduring this harsh world until he comes back and makes it right again. No, we've been sent into the world to be peacemakers. Like Adam and Eve cultivated the garden, we are called to cultivate shalom in whatever little corner of the world God has put us. How do you do that? That is a huge question. And there are probably like countless ways to answer it. As I've been thinking about it, just this one principle has come to mind that I think will be helpful. And that is, do your best to humanize every situation. The way we do that is by telling story and engaging things personally. Uh, I just want to end by sort of illustrating some ways I've experienced that this year, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. 
One example is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I sound smart just saying that. That's something I'm aware that exists, but I don't know much about it. I have very abstract understanding and depersonalized understanding of it. Uh, but about a month ago, I was invited by a friend to a screening of a documentary about this Palestinian family that lives on this 100-acre farm uh, less than 10 miles outside of Bethlehem. And their families own this land for like 105 years. Uh, but for the last 30 years, they've been in this intense legal struggle to keep their land from being confiscated as Israeli state property. And there's just a whole complexity of issues going on there. Now, what was fascinating about this, this family who are Christians is their commitment to peaceful resistance and peaceful resolution. They've launched a whole ministry out of this place committed to building bridges and raising awareness of situations like this. Uh, I want you to just listen to one little bit of their vision statement. Listen to just the holistic way that they're cultivating shalom. They say, faced with great injustice, we know that we should not hate, despair, or flee. We can refuse to be enemies and channel our pain and frustration into positive actions which will build a better future. We work to reconnect people with the land. Through mixing our hands with the soil, we learn to value and understand the significance of our environment. We aim to help the oppressed and the marginalized realize that they are powerful. We all have a role in creating the future we wanna see. Now, clearly, this, this family is a group of peacemakers. But the thing I want you to see is that the, the person who made this film is also a peacemaker. He became aware of this story and he had this burden to tell it to people like me who need to, to hear the story, who need to engage it personally and learn the people's names. It has changed the whole way that I see that conflict. Another example, uh, there is an underlying tension between just Christians and Muslims in our country. In many places in the world, it's not underlying at all. It's like explicit, extreme persecution. And so I'm sort of aware of that. I recently became more aware. There are a group of Christian and Muslim leaders who formed a network uh, in which they could get to know each other and for the main purpose of just cultivating relationship and understanding and so that they could help each other promote religious freedom all around the world. Now listen, they are very honest about their differing beliefs, but that doesn't create conflict. It fosters understanding. It helps them learn how they can work together to promote universal good and human flourishing. Earlier this year, I was invited to participate in one of the groups in this network. And I'll, I'll be honest, I initially was kind of hesitant. I felt weird or kind of, I felt some tension and I didn't know why it was there. In hindsight, I realized the reason I felt that tension is because I don't actually really know any Muslims that well. But through this network, I was introduced to one of the imams who's like a Muslim pastor here in Austin. His name is Atiyah. He is a smart, hardworking guy. He has a great story, a wonderful family. One night, our, both of our families got on Zoom and, and talked to each other about our backgrounds. And it's just fascinating. He and I talk about our differing beliefs. We answer each other's questions and we clarify misconceptions. We talk about the needs in our city, even ways that in the future we might be able to help each other address some of those needs. 
there's no big end to this story. The point is, that weirdness I felt was only resolved when I, when I got to know a real person, when the situation became human to me. Earlier this year, some of the laws in our city were changed, and it's made the homeless community more visible. And some people like that, and some people don't. I know that driving down the freeway in my car, it's really easy to look over under the underpass and just cast judgment or have pity. But earlier this year, I met a woman, a 25-year-old pregnant homeless woman, and that personalized the situation for me. What, what shocked me was how hard it was to help her, even though she wanted it. I mean, I had connections and resources. There were multiple people collaborating on this, and it took us four months just to get some temporary housing for this woman, which is only a short-term solution. That experience changed the way that I see this issue in our city. Earlier this fall, two different people told me that they didn't think I could be a Christian and vote for candidate XYZ. Now, what's crazy is those two Christians both said that about both each, both candidates. It's like a very hard rule. Like, I can't vote for anybody and be a Christian now. Now, listen, I can just say those people are crazy. I can chalk it up to 2020, and that would kind of dissolve the issue. But if I want to pursue shalom, then I've got to start asking questions. I've got to understand the story and these people's experiences and what, what makes them feel that way. We might not come to a place of agreement, but... We might at least come to a place where we can replace our judgment with compassion. And that is how we cultivate shalom. We could go on and on. This principle of just humanizing the situation, engaging it personally can be applied in so many areas of our life. And I think this is what Paul's getting at in Romans 12, when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know how you would do any of that without getting to know people and their story. During Advent, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, because we long for peace. But until he comes... We're called to be peacemakers in this world. And so, wherever and however people in this world have lost their way, we proclaim that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. And we invite people to come home to him because he is the prince of peace. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.